we're starting a new series that I'm really excited about called The Story of David. And I'm excited about this because uh, this particular chunk of scripture uh, where, we, where we talk about David, uh, King David, it's my, he, he is my favorite character in all the Bible, but, you know, just under Jesus. Like, he's my favorite character in the whole Bible. I love the story. It's exciting. It's like... Uh, it's the Bible's version of like Treasure Island. I mean, it's just, there's, there's swashbuckling and there's adventure and there's uh, chopping off the heads of giants. And there's just, there's just, his story is so fantastic. And he's such an interesting person, like a, such an interesting personality where he is, he's, compl- he's complex. He is on one hand, this uh, king, um, he's like kind of the first great king of, of Israel and and so he's he's got these kingly attributes but he's also an everyman type of guy and he's this great great warrior i mean like a fierce warrior people feared him when they went to battle you know and, and were across the field from from king david he was a fierce fierce violent warrior and um and so there's that side of him and then there's this whole other side of him that he is he's a poet too um, you know, all the book of most of the book of Psalms, um, which is basically the hymn book or the song book of of the the, the Israelites. Uh, most of those psalm, songs were written by David, and they they're fantastic. They just run like the whole gamut of human emotion uh, from everything from just these kind of raucous praise songs. You know, the, like like we, we we will sing, and in fact, a lot of the lyrics that we sing come from, uh, lyrics that we, we ripped off from King David. And, and so, um, so, so there's, he does these just praise songs where he's just praising God on one hand. And then you'll go over to the very next song and it's, it's heart wrenching the you know, loneliness. God, why have you forgotten me? Where are you? Um, you know, why are my enemies triumphing over me and, and you're nowhere to be seen. And, and just this whole thing, like, it's just this whole scope of human emotion and, and, and so he's, he's this warrior, he's this poet, he's, he's a man who, you know, the, the, the subtitle of the series is, is chasing after the heart of God. The reason that is, is because uh, the Bible actually tells us that God said that, that David was a man after God's own heart. Like David, like, wouldn't you like for someday that to be said about you? Like, like, you know, Jeff was a man after God's own heart. Like, I'm, I don't know if that would ever be said about me. I, and I don't know if it'd ever be said about you, but it'd be cool if it was. Uh, I, I mean, I'm after something. I don't know if it's God's own heart, but, but, but it, you know, just to have that, that God thinks so highly of you that like, like David gets me. He's a man after we're cut from the same cloth. He's a man after my own heart. Um, so there's, so there's, there's that God fearing, God chasing, God honoring, God praising side of David where he, he just wants to do everything to the glory of God. He wants to live a, a God honoring life. And then there's the other side, the, the other side of that spectrum in David's life where, where when, when David sinned, he sinned with a capital S. I mean, he didn't sin small, like forget, you know, little white lies and stuff like that. Like, like when David sinned, we're talking adultery and murder and every, you know, just like he's, when he sinned, he sinned big. And, um, and so, so, but I love that, uh, that kind of complex guy, this warrior poet, this, uh, God honoring n- rotten sinner, um, could God could look at a person like that and go, that's a man after my heart. That's a man after my heart. Um, so complex. And so what we're going to do is, is for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the life of David and we're going to look at it under, uh, 
kind of four different sections uh, or descriptors of his life, I think, that, that really describe his journey as you read it through Scripture. Uh, this week we're going to look at the, the calling of David and the, the calling that God placed on his life and what it looks like when God calls us to things as well. But then we're going to next week look at uh, the, the, the portion of, of life that was all about delay. And David went through this long process of after he was called to be king, it didn't happen right away. He had to wait a lot of years before he ever saw that calling actually go into effect. And all that went through, he went through while he was waiting, 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 and how he honored God during that waiting period. And then we're going to look at the third week about how uh, David was such a flawed individual. He was not the perfect man. He wasn't always the perfect example. He had a lot of uh, demons, you know, that, that he had to deal with. And so, and then the final week, we're going to look at the fact that at the end of his life, um, ultimately David had to be replaced, replaced. And that, you know, these lives that we live while we hope to leave an impact and, and we can look at somebody like David, who certainly has left an impact at the end of the day. Um, we also have to be ready to be replaced. You know, we don't get to live these lives forever and be great, you know, just kind of live in a state of greatness forever. Somebody's coming behind us. And so what does that look like for the lives that we're living right now? So let's kind of dive in. Uh, Again, I love this. I I just love, you know, the story of David because I like, uh, does anybody like violent movies? I love, I I know you're not supposed to, I'm not a pastor who's not supposed to admit you like violent movies. I love violent movies. I love that. Like, I just, I don't know. I just love it. And David is violent. I mean, he's just violent. And you're, and I know we're, we're Christians and we're about, we're about peace and, and we're not supposed to be about violence, but the junior high boy in me kind of rares up and he's like, you know, it's kind of awesome when a dude gets his head cut off and, and you know, that sort of thing. And so, so I, I, I just, I love that stuff. And, and, um, but it's, it's such a great story. So when we dive in, let me, let me kind of set the background of what's going on before we dive into it. We're going to be in first Samuel, the book of first Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. The reason the book is called Samuel, uh, if, you're, if you're having trouble finding it, it comes right before 2 Samuel. And so, that, and so anyway, so the reason it's called 1 and 2 Samuel is because um, um, the prophet of God, who was kind of the prophet of God during this time period of history, uh, was a guy by the name of Samuel. And by the way, the time period that we're looking at, we're looking at about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, okay? A thousand years before Christ. And, uh, and so let me set the stage for you. So, uh, if you remember some of your old, uh, Sunday school stories back from the book of Exodus where, you know, there was, or if you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt movie or, or whatever, you know, there's this whole, uh, story of, of God delivering, uh, Israel out of slavery in Egypt into a, a land that he promised them of their own, where they would be, uh, a, a people of their own, not just slaves, but they would be free and they would have their own nation and that sort of thing. So, we, we pick up this story on the tail end of all of that. When, when Israel finally established itself as a nation itself, um, it, it looked kind of different. They were led by two groups of people. They were led religiously uh, by the priests uh, that, that played a very important role in the nation. And then kind of politically and militarily, they were led by uh, what, we call, what, they, what the Bible calls judges. 
And so these judges were, were the leaders. They weren't kings. They weren't royal. You know, you didn't pass down your judgeship to your son or the first in line. It was just it was more of an appointment uh, or, or a calling that, that somebody, uh, you know, that came from God or came from the people. But these were kind of political slash military uh, slash judicial type leaders of the nation. And so for a lot of years, Israel was led by these judges. And then as, you know, as time went on and Israel began to encounter all the neighboring nations around them, and, you know, sometimes it would be uh, in battle, in wartime and things like that, they, they began to look at all these other nations and go, these nations have something that we don't have. These nations have a king. We don't have a king. We got a judge. And a king is so much more imposing than a judge. Right, like, like if if if, a, if somebody shows up at the city walls and is ready to attack your city and your nation, and and the king is there and he's regal and and he's impressive looking and he appears strong and he's got this army behind him and everything else. I mean, that's that's intimidating. It's intimidating to be, you know, to kind of have to approach a king. If if Israel goes and needs to attack somebody or whatever, or, or they send out their leaders to you know to face off against the attacking nations, and it's like they're sending out this judge, they were like, it's not, it doesn't quite have the same effect. It doesn't have the same effect. And so we, I think we should get a king. And so they began to have these conversations about, I think we should have a king. And they would go to their prophets and their priests, and I think we need to appoint kings. And God's response to to the people through His prophets was. You don't want that. God basically said, I'm your king. I'm the only king you'll ever need. I I didn't set this nation up for you to be ruled by kings. Right now, you think you want a king, but I'm here to tell you, that's not going to go the way you think it's going to go because kings don't deal kindly with their subjects. Kings are about kings. Kings don't tend to be about uh, the people, the common people, their kings are about building their own kingdoms and their own legacy and their own wealth and their, you know, whatever. And God's like, I don't think that's what you want. And, but the people kept coming back to the prophets going, I think we need a king. I think we need a king. And so finally God relent, relented and he bas- basically, God says in so many words, okay, let's see how this goes then. If this is really what you want, let's, let's sit, I'll, I'll sit back. We'll see how this plays out which is just so typical God. I mean, doesn't God deal with that, deal with us like, like that a lot of times in our own lives where we go to God and, and, and we insist on our own way. We've got that plan for our lives and we want things to go the way that we want. In the meantime, scripture is there going, I think this is the wiser path. I think this is the way you should go. But God doesn't force himself on us. Instead, he tries to lead us as a good father would lead us. But at the end of the day, he goes, okay, if that's really the direction that you want to go. Let's see how this plays out. Anybody could raise your hand and go, there are times in my life I could definitely admit I wish I would have listened to God. Yeah, <laughs> so many of us, right? I can think of so many circumstances where it's like, man, that would have turned out so, that would cost, you know, that, that, that situation that I chose cost me thousands of dollars and lots and lots of tears and whatever else. If I just would have listened to the wisdom of God instead of insisting on having things my way or in my own time or whatever, and God, but God, he, he kind of lets us go our own way. It'd be easier if he controlled us like puppets and was like, you know, no, no, I'm going to force this on you. Or, or, but no, sometimes he just lets us go our own way. 
And so that's what he does with Israel. He says, okay, go ahead, get yourself a king. Go find yourself a king. And so Israel goes, and they, they, they want to find a king that's going to be intimidating. So they try to find the biggest guy, the, a guy from a good family, uh, a guy that's strong and handsome and just intimidating and a fierce warrior and, you know, that sort of thing. And so they end up selecting this guy by the name of Saul. So the first king of Israel was this guy named Saul. And Saul, when you read scripture, Saul starts off pretty good. Uh, you know, the first couple of years of his reign, he's, you know, he's, he's, He's a decent king. He's not a horrible king. He's, he's uh, trying to you know, bring honor to God and glorify God in the way that he leads. But as often leaders and kings do, uh, Saul goes sideways. And Saul begins to be more concerned with Saul. Saul begins to be more concerned with his own legacy and his own position of king than worrying about maybe the way God would have him lead the nation. And, and so it gets so bad, Saul goes so sideways, that at, just a couple years into his reign as king, God, uh, through one of the prophets, basically tells, you know, tells us that um, God removed his spirit from Saul. God wasn't going to bless his leadership anymore. He was going to remove his spirit, Holy Spirit empowering from Saul. And, uh, and he told his prophet Samuel, uh, I, I've got another king in mind. I've, I, I've got a better king in mind, and I'm going to pass this, this crown uh, to my man now. And so this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. And what happens, God sends um, um, Samuel to a city that you may have heard of before called Bethlehem. And he sends, he sends Samuel to Bethlehem, and uh, uh, this is where a guy by the name of Jesse lived. And Jesse... Uh, was a, a decent man who had a bunch of sons and, and God told Samuel, I want you to select uh, and anoint the next King from amongst Jesse's sons. And you'll know when you see him, you'll know, you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll have this kind of supernatural connection. I'll let you know which one it is. Right. And so, so Samuel shows up and this is where we pick up first Samuel 16, start with verse six. It says when they came, he looked on Eliab. This is one of uh, uh, Jesse's sons. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. Now listen to this line. This is important. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now that's important. We're going to come back to that. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up 
and went to Ramah. So, so again, he, he goes through this whole process of, of, of kind of looking at all of Jesse's sons. He, he, no, nobody looks like the man of God, you know, the one that God wants to anoint. He finally sends to get the, you know, the, the baby brother out of the field from watching the sheep because surely it can't be the baby brother. Why would God anoint the baby brother, right? And so baby brother comes, it's David. He sees him. He's like, yep, this is the one. And he anoints him as the next king, right? Now, I love that it gives us a little description of David here that even though God doesn't look at outward appearances, David was a pretty good looking guy. It says, uh, it says now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, ruddy is not a word that we use a lot nowadays, but basically the word ruddy means red complected, like his complexion was kind of red. In other words, he had color in his skin. He wasn't pale and sickly looking or, or malnourished looking or whatever. I mean, he, he had a reddish complexion. So reddish complexion, beautiful eyes. He's handsome, basically kind of like this right here. And so like, that's, that's basically what David looked like. And so um, anyway, so yeah, so he's a good looking guy and God anoints him uh, to be the next king. Now, one of the things I know that happens oftentimes when we feel God kind of calling us to something in our lives, when we feel that God is impressing upon us a calling. Now it could be, it could look like a lot of different things for some of you in, in, in the room today. The calling that you're experiencing right now is that initial call into being a person of faith. That very first, like God, like that, the, one, the one calling that we all have in common is God is calling you to faith in him. And some of you are sitting back kind of pondering whether or not you should become a person of faith. And you're going, I don't see it. I don't see it. I'm not the church type. I'm, I know what, how Christians behave and how they talk and what they do and what they don't do. I know what the Bible says, Jesus, how he taught us to live and all that kind of stuff. And that's just not me. I don't see me being able to pull that off. I, I don't think I can do that. And you question like whether or not you can do that. For some of you who maybe are already people of faith, you feel the Holy Spirit kind of nudging you towards specific, very more specific things. Maybe it's a specific ministry or a specific, you know, that God, God's given you a dream to answer a, a particular problem that's going on in our church or in our community or in the world in, in general or, or whatever. Maybe God is calling you out of a sinful behavior to something that's more honoring to him. And you're still telling yourself those same questions. I, I, don't, I don't see it. I don't think I, I don't think I can do that. I think God has got his messages mixed up. I don't think I can be that person. I don't think I can lead that ministry solve that problem. I, you know, parent this different way. I, you know, I don't think I can avoid that temptation, whatever it is you're telling yourself. And you, you, when we get these callings, a lot of times what happens is we just fill our mind with all the reasons this is, this is not going to work out. But God doesn't look on outward appearances. He sees the person, he sees the person's heart. And the first thing I want, want to give you this morning is this, that God's call in your life is true because he sees the true you. You can trust God's call in your life to be true because he alone sees the true you. Like he, he, his vision of you, he cuts through all that bull that you fill your head with telling yourself how uh, incapable or unworthy or whatever you are. And he cuts through all that because he can see who you really are. He can see more in you than you can see in yourself. Who here has a person in your life that when you look at their life, you, you see that they are capable of more than they see that they're capable of. Anybody know somebody like that? Yeah. A lot of us, especially, uh, you know, if you're a parent, 
this really plays out a lot of time where, uh, you know, as, when we're kids, you know, I've got four kids, and when we're kids, we, um, we believe we're capable of anything. Like kids have the greatest, every kid can be, believes he can be, uh, or she can be a doctor or an astronaut or uh, anything they put their mind to, anything that they're passionate about. They can just, that's what I'm going to do. Why wouldn't I do that? You know, they're just going to be that thing, whatever they set their mind to be. And it's when we get older that we begin to doubt ourselves and question ourselves and we begin to see ourselves as smaller. And isn't it hard, if you're a parent, isn't it heartbreaking when you look at your kids as they get older and they don't see the potential in themselves that you see? Doesn't it just like crush you? You want them so bad to believe in themselves the way that you believe in them, right? And, and, and so like when my, my kids were little, like Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, when he was little, he wanted, he, he would say all the time, I'm going to be a youth pastor and I'm going to be a bounty hunter. He was going to be a youth pastor and a bounty hunter. He loved watching Dog the Bounty Hunter. And he just wanted to put a boot on somebody's neck for Jesus. That's all he wanted to do. And, and so, so he, it, it was always, and, and his career would always change. I'm going to be a youth pastor and this. I'm going to be a youth pastor and this. He's going to have a dual career. But for a long time, he was a youth pastor and a bounty hunter. Meadow, my youngest one, she's six now. And uh, she's going to be a florist and a gymnastics teacher and now also a uh, dolphin trainer. And so those are what that's. And so when you're, when we're young, man, we just believe we're capable of anything. When I was five, I was going to be a zookeeper. I just thought that'd be the best job in the world. Uh, you know, it looked fun in the curious George books, I guess. And, and that was going to be good. And so, but we just believe anything. But when we get older, uh, you know, this doubt, I think the enemy, I don't, I don't know if we realize parents, I don't know if we realize how much the enemy attacks our kids. I mean, I think we have a clear view of how much the enemy attacks us. I don't know if we realize how much the enemy attacks our kids. There's that process they go through where many of our kids, they just stop believing in themselves. They get this just really negative view of, of their abilities and of their, you know, and you want them to see you're, you're, you're so much smarter than you give yourself credit for. You're so much more beautiful. You're so much more handsome than you give yourself credit for. You're just beating yourself down and there's so much to you. And I really believe that this is the way God looks at us. I think all the while we're giving ourselves, you know, a hundred reasons why we could never do whatever it is God is calling us to do. And God is looking at us going, you are so much more than you're giving yourself credit for. But this is the beautiful thing. God can say that because he, one, because he sees the real us. He sees the true version of us. But he also can say that because Ultimately, when he calls us to do things, that calling is not based on how amazing we are. It's based on how amazing he is. He can call us to do whatever because he is capable of accomplishing whatever through anybody. Now, David's been called, and, and then we go into the, the next chapter. Now, the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17, is the quintessential David story. This is the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. For some of you who are brand new to church, you thought you didn't know David and Goliath was, was an actual story. You just thought it was something, you know, all the commentators said every, every year at March Madness time. Like it's David versus Goliath and, you know, whatever. And, and it's actually an actual story of two characters named David and Goliath. And, and so d- d- Goliath was basically this uh, giant of a man. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let me, let me give you the, the kind of the setting for what's happening in uh, chapter 17. So uh, Israel goes to battle against this group of people called the Philistines. And they're assembled for battle in this large valley with mountains on either side. 
And the Philistines are encamped on one side near the mountains. And the Israelites are encamped on the opposite side near the opposite mountains. And they're kind of, they're kind of at a stalemate. They're kind of at a face-off. And then uh, one of the, the, the mightiest warrior that the Philistines had to offer was this guy named Goliath. And he was a, what, what the Bible calls a giant. And uh, now there's, there's a lot of weird uh, stuff going on in the Bible about giants and a lot of foggy stuff there. But basically, you know, like when I think giant... I think like Stay Puff Marshmallow Man going down the streets, you know, that sort of thing, giant, giant like buildings tall, giant, or, or, you know, Hulk when he's all hulked out, or, you know, that's what I think of when I think giant. Uh, when the Bible is talking about a giant, they're just talking about an abnormally large dude. Like this guy was big. He was really big. He's, he was big even by today's standards, but it, we're not talking 100, 100 feet tall giant. We're talking about a guy that was probably, you know, 10 to 15 feet tall, somewhere in that. I mean, he's a big, not, you know, that's nothing to wink at. That's a big dude. But, but still, not like, we're not talking Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, okay? So, so but uh, just an abnormally large dude. And so, this is where we pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 17. It says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, <coughs> pardon me, Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze swung between his shoulders. Um, slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Verse 8. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul... And all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. All right. So basically, Goliath comes out. He's their mightiest warrior. He's like, let's forget all this bloodshed and everything else. I'm the best we have to offer. You send out the best you have to offer. We'll go mano we mano. We'll, we'll go head to head. And whoever comes out on top, that's the army that wins. And so uh, Goliath does this because he knows he's the biggest dude around. And he knows everybody's going to be afraid of him, and he just begins to taunt. And so oh, for, for days, the scripture tells us, he, he taunts them. He goes out daily to make that same challenge. He makes fun of them. He starts making fun of their God, uh, all kinds of stuff. And, 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 and I want to point you to the, uh, verse 16, just a short little verse. And it says this, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. For 40 days he came forward. Now, who here has ever been scared? Anybody? Like, I've been scared. I've been scared. I've been scared for my life once or at least once or twice, uh, you know. And, um, and so, like, I've, I've been in situations where fear overtook me, right? Um, I don't know that I've ever had a crippling fear that lasted for 40 days. Like, crippled by fear for 40 days. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times when we have these situations in life... Uh, that, you know, when we kind of face our own metaphorical giants, so to speak. Um, it's, it's not that we're afraid to face 
whatever situation we're facing, there's something else at play a lot of times. Imagine these guys encamped in their tents, like hiding in their tents for 40 days. Like, okay, let, let's say you're, you're scared out of your pants for, for a day. Let's say that carries on into a few more days. At day 40, you have become comfortable in your fear. You know what I'm saying? At day 40, you're just kind of resting in this fear. Fear is just this new way of life for you now. It's not an urgent fear. Like they're here at the door now. Oh my, you know, oh my gosh. No, it's, it's just, you, you're, you've just become comfortable living in this weird state of fear. And it wasn't so much that in, in, in this particular part of the story, it's not so much that Israel needed a man to step forward. What Israel needed was a leader. They needed, they needed their leader. They needed Saul who was out there on the battlefield with them. They, need, they were waiting for him to come up with a plan. What are we going to do? How are we going to face this guy? What, who are you going to send? Are you going to go yourself? And they're just waiting for a leader to step up. And Saul was incapable of the king, the king that they selected, completely inept, completely in, incapable of being that leader. And so they find themselves waiting for somebody to give them direction. Now that somebody, I'm going to spoiler alert, that somebody ends up being David. But before we get to that part of the story, let me, let me just hit this. That in, in, in God's economy of things, a person with purpose is always greater than a person with position. A person with purpose is always greater than a person with position. And we find ourselves so many times sitting around waiting on people with titles, waiting with the people who are, you know, by title, by position, the leaders of us or our organization or whatever else. And we find ourselves waiting on them to move. And in the meantime, God has placed purpose and calling on our lives and a calling trumps a crown every day of the week. A a calling always trumps a crown. And we don't need to be people who will sit back and wait to be led. God has put his Holy Spirit within you and a calling on your life and given you a purpose and a role in his kingdom. And he just wants you to move when he says move. We don't need to sit back and wait because a person with a purpose is always greater than a person with a position. Now, what happens next is Jesse, David's father, sends David to the battle. Uh, David wasn't quite old enough to be in the army yet. And he sent, but he sends him out to the battle to take, take food to his brothers. His brothers are out there. And so David comes bearing sandwiches and heads out to the battlefield. And he goes looking for his brothers. And when he gets, gets there, what he sees is the whole army of Israel, his brothers included and the king included, hiding shaking in their boots, hiding in their tents, just hiding. And meanwhile, there's this Yahoo on the other side of the valley, big dude, that's shouting obscenities and insults to Israel and her God. And David is just young enough and just dumb enough to walk up to that situation and assess it and go, oh no, this is, this is not going to go down this way. This is not. And so he begins to talk. He's like, um, come out here, come out of this tent. Are you guys kidding me right now? Do you not hear what I'm hearing? Do you not hear this guy and what he's saying about you? What he's saying about our king? What he's saying about our God? 
do you not hear what this will not stand? (laughs) He's like, something has to be done. And everybody starts kind of teasing David. He's a young man. And they're like, yeah, why don't you go do something about it then, smart guy? He's like, I will. I'll absolutely do something about this. And his brothers get involved. And they're like, dude, you need to go home. You have no idea what you're talking about. But word of David's boldness and his courage makes its way back to King Saul into King Saul's tent where's he where he's hiding and so Saul's like okay send me this young man let me talk to him and David goes to Saul's tent and uh and Saul's like what makes you think you know we've got we, we, we've, we've assembled our mightiest warriors here for battle what makes you young man think you can handle this situation and David begins to tell the story tell stories to Saul he's like okay you know I know you guys are got your army thing going on and you get your soldier soldiering thing. Uh, you may not know this about me. I'm a shepherd. I'm a shepherd. And there's been times and my brothers don't really do anything around the house. So I do all the shepherding by myself. And there have been times I've been out doing my shepherding thing in the field overnight and lions have creeped up on the flock and God has given me the power to actually defeat the lions. There was another time when a bear came and tried to steal one of my sheep. I wasn't having any part of that. I took that bear out. So, and then he says this. It's one of the most beautiful phrases in all of the Bible. Verse 37, he says, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Okay, go. The Lord be with you. All right. Go ahead. And then Saul, Saul does this thing where he tries to put his, his armor on David and it just like swallows David up and he can't hardly move. And he's like, no, 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 I don't need this. I'm just going to go out in my, my short pants. I'll be good. And, and so he heads out. And so I'm not going to read the rest of the story to you. you go read it on your own because it's a great story. But basically David defeats Goliath with a slingshot and a rock and then goes and chops his head off. And it's awesome. And it's awesome. Okay. And so, um, so, but the whole point I want to, I want to draw out here is, is I love that David's attitude, his, his belief in himself comes from his belief in God. David doesn't just show up going, dude, this is over. David's here. You know, that's not what he does. He's not, it's not like he's, he's not braggadocious about himself. David shows up and reminds everybody around him. Did you guys forget who's, who we belong to? Did you guys forget the God that we serve? Did you guys forget everything this God has accomplished in our lives? He is our God. And that guy is cursing his name. Do you really think that we serve a God who's going to leave us to be defeated by that jerk? David's faith springs from a faith in God, not a faith just in his own self and his own ability. But I love the reasons that David gives that he knows, okay, now I'm not suggesting David wasn't afraid. I'm sure he was afraid. I'm sure he was quaking a little bit himself. But David's, again, his belief wasn't in himself. His belief was in the fact that the same God who showed up for him before would surely show up for him today. The same God who did that, all that stuff for him before, that helped him defeat lions that were stronger than him and bears that were stronger than him. And that same God would help him beat this guy. I think a lot of times when we're dealing with the callings of God in our life, we 
we have a tendency to have this kind of tunnel vision where we only see the situation in front of us. And we lose sight completely of all the times before that God has delivered us, that God has given us the victory, that God has brought us through hard times to the other side. And all we can see is this impossible situation in front of us. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to work out well. I don't think I can do this. We become like those soldiers in those tents going, this is, I'm not doing this. This is, this is unwinnable. In the meantime, these guys have a history of God showing up in crazy ways. Miraculous, miraculous ways. The point I want to bring out about this right now is, is this, that um, God's past faithfulness is proof of his future faithfulness. When you're looking at your life, God's past faithfulness in your life is proof of his future faithfulness. That the same God who delivered you before will deliver you now. The same God who got you out of that temptation before will get you out of this temptation now. The same God who accomplished so much in you before will accomplish greater things in you now. Do you guys know that Jesus, um, uh, when he was, you know, some of the last words he said to his disciples, he's gathering his disciples around, he, he, Jesus, now this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is walking on water Jesus. This is feeding thousands of people with a, with a lunchable Jesus. This is, this is like, like miracle-working Jesus, right? Jesus told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you guys will be accomplishing greater things than even I accomplished. And that goes to us too. He's talking about all, all, his, all these followers that come after that time. That Jesus' word to us is, you guys will accomplish more than even I did. Like I, 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 There was some great stuff that happened here in my ministry. Even greater things are coming. And yet we constantly tell ourselves, I don't think we can do this. I don't think we can do this. All through scripture, especially in the Old Testament, there are uh, some of the kind of forefathers or, or the patriarchs of, of the Bible. Whenever they would have these encounters with God, when God gave them some sort of spiritual victory or physical victory, or when God moved in some sort of miraculous or way, miraculous way or something, uh, oftentimes what they would, would do is that they would stop and they would build an altar or they would, build, uh, they would put down these uh, monuments that were often called stones of remembrance. And, and so there are times when, like if you read through Genesis and, you know, Jacob, uh, you know, has a situation with God where God shows up in a big way and he builds this, these stones of remembrance, this monument to God. And, and the writer of Genesis will say, and that monument's still there to this day. You can go look at it. And I think we need to get in the habit of making stones of remembrance in our life. Little things, little things that remind us of when God has come through for us. Little things that remind us of, of God's faithfulness, what he's delivered us from. I've got trinkets uh, on the shelves in my office, and, and all of them have some sort of meaning to me. There's a, if you go in my office up on the shelf, there's a, there's a black and white aluminum can, uh, unopened, and it's an Anheuser-Busch can, and it's drinking water. Drinking water that uh, Anheuser-Busch uh, canned up uh, because when, I was in, when we were in Missouri at a church, we went through this horrible ice storm where the town didn't have power, the whole county didn't have power for like three weeks. And, uh, and our church was able to step up in a really amazing way and help people in some really amazing ways. And we saw so many people come to Christ because of that storm. And I kept one of those little Anheuser-Busch drink, you know, drinking water cans just to remind myself of that. Even out of the worst situations, God can do an amazing thing. 
And I've got other little trinkets on, on the shelves that remind me of other times. These are my stones of remembrance. I've got, I've got a stone of remembrance that, that I don't like talking about. It's, it's one that I'm not very proud of. Um, and it's, I keep it buried. I don't keep it out for everybody to see. But, um, uh, you know, there was a time um, seven or eight years into Jamie and I's marriage where uh, it was rough. We were about that close to divorce. And um, I, I, I remember one particular day uh, we got in just a big, you know, horrible, horrible fight, just screaming and, you know, ugliness, just knocking things off the walls and punching walls. And, you know, it, just, it was just ugly. It was mainly me. And, um, and so that was a day that I left. I, I felt like, um, you know, but before that point, you know, having my kids in my life was, was, the, you know, the reason I would stick around or keeping my career or whatever was the reason I would stick. And finally I hit this boiling point where none of those were good enough reason anymore. And I just, I walked out and I was gone for about a day. And, um, but on my way out, I just, I threw just the ugliest fit. And, um, Molly, my oldest uh, was, she was, I don't remember six or so at the time. And, um, she was playing basketball in a little boys and girls club league. And, and, um, I didn't realize it or I'd forgotten it or whatever, but that particular day was, was, um, picture day for the team. And, um, a few weeks later, you know, her, her team picture came back and, her eyes are just red and swollen from crying in this picture. I hate that picture. <laughs> I hate it. But I keep it because, one, it's a, it's a reminder of um, the weight of leadership in my family that God has placed on me. But it's also a reminder of what God brought us out of. How he delivered us from that time in our life. Um, when I didn't see any hope at all, God did a miracle on my heart and changed my heart towards my wife and towards my family. We need those stones of remembrance to remind us of how even, you know, when we're strong, it doesn't matter whether we're strong or whether we're weak, whether we're extremely faithful to God or, or whether we're not, God will always be faithful. The Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us that even if you're unfaithful to God, God can't help but be faithful to you. He'll always be faithful to you. And so I want to challenge you to kind of build up these stones of remembrance in your own life and remind yourself how God has been faithful to you in the past and use that as a cue for you to remember that he will be faithful to you again. What he delivered you from in the past, he will deliver you from in even greater ways in the future. God will do that. God will do that. We all have these callings on our life, and um, um, some of them are very specific callings to our lives individually. Some of them are more of a general calling of just a calling to live in the joy and salvation of the Lord. Whatever calling it is you feel like God is placing on your life right now, I want you to be able to to move forward in that and say yes to God in that calling. Put aside all those doubts and all those fears and everything else that's telling you you can't do that thing that God is calling you to. Instead, just trust him. 
God's not calling you to be his follower because he thinks you're going to be a super Christian. He's calling you because he loves you. And he's a super God. God's not calling you to some ministry or some sort of life change or some, some sort of individual call in your life because he thinks you're going to just knock it out of the park. He's calling because he's going to do it anyway, and he's chosen you to do it through. He's using you in his whole kingdom plan to allow him to use you in that way. Would you guys, as we close this morning, pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we love you and uh, your word is good to us this morning. Thank you for the example that you've set for us in your servant, David. And um, God, help us to embrace the callings that you place on our life and the way that David embraced the callings that you placed in his life, not because we think we're great, but because we know you're great. And um, God, across the room right now, if there are people that you're calling into a relationship with you for the first time uh, right now, God, I pray that you would help them to believe right now that you are who you say you are and that you can do in their life what you say your word tells us that you can do. So help them to put aside all of the excuses that they're thinking of why they shouldn't become a person of faith and instead help them to believe that because you're faithful, uh, that you can teach them how to be faithful as well. Um, God, for the, for the rest of us, maybe that have been people of faith for a while, um, help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. Help us to have faith in what you can accomplish through us. And we'll just trust you. We'll just trust you. Thank you for loving us the way that you love us and thank you for your faithfulness. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. Amen. All right. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you next week.